Welcome to our public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Roland Jones, a neuropharmacologist from the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology at the University of Bath, will be exploring the history of epilepsy through the ages. Good evening. Welcome. Um, I have to start by warning you that, A, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a medical doctor, and B, I'm not a historian either. Okay, so this is really very much a hobby interest of mine because my research is based around looking at mechanisms of the generation of seizure activity in brain tissue, but it's at a very basic level, um, looking at nerve networks in uh, rat brain primarily to look and see how epileptic activity is generated in those networks. I'm not going to blind you with science this afternoon at all. Um, I will touch a little bit on some science right at the beginning as a bit of background, but mostly it is just looking at the history of epilepsy and anti-epileptic treatments. Um, when I agreed to do this, I thought, oh, that's easy, I'll skim through that. That's not a bad topic to talk about. Um, it's been an enormous amount of work, actually, and um, I've thought that within 45 to 50 minutes I could cover a really good chunk of the history of epilepsy and treatment. I've discovered that that's not really possible. It's got such a huge, long history that it's really going to be a very much a whistle-stop tour through this this afternoon. And I'm just going to concentrate on some interesting bits of the history of ep epilepsy because in between there's a lot of dull stuff to be perfectly honest and I'm going to hopefully going to leave out most of the dull stuff and give you the interesting stuff. Okay, if I can get my slides to move. Let's start with a bit of a definition of the term. Epilepsy is derived from the Greek, this word up here, epilambinin, which essentially means to seize, as you might expect. It's a disorder involving um, seizures and the ancient Egyptians knew quite a lot about epilepsy and this is um, Egyptian hieroglyphics here um, which represent the word epilepsy and if it, you translate the hieroglyphics you come up with this word NSJT pronounced nesjet which means epilepsy in ancient Greek but what do these symbols mean? Well these symbols here this stands for the N these, the bales of fabric, stands for the S. These are reed leaves, which stand for the J, and the loaf of bread, which stands for the T. Now, that gives you the word, the ancient Egyptian word. But what do the wits at the end mean? Well, this bit at the, mo at the front here is representative of the cobra, and that was, to the Egyptians, um, meaning something that comes from God. Okay, and the guy at the end with the sword is the symbol which represents a man with a stick, and that represents danger. So it was seen as um, a serious disorder, um, and it's a very dangerous disorder, which we know it is, but it also means that they thought that it came from God. And this is something that's influenced the whole of epilepsy research, the whole of the history of epilepsy, until pretty much the um, 18th, 19th century. And still in some parts of the world now, epilepsy is viewed as a magical disorder, a spiritual disorder, um, a disorder that's visited upon you by gods or evil spirits. Okay, and this is represented here by the dangerous disease coming from God. Okay, now I'm going to give you a few facts and figures about epilepsy, just to stress to you the seriousness of this disorder. Um, it affects about half to 1% of the population. So that's one in 100 people, nearly, who are diagnosed as epileptic. A lot of people. It's the second most common neurological disorder. Children are very susceptible. There's a period in, uh, as you develop where epilepsy is very highly prevalent during... Um, Juvenile years and adulthood, it tends to decrease in prevalence, but then increases again in the elderly. And I'm not going to, say, blind you with the science, but that's essentially related to the state of development 
of the nerve networks in your brain, which are stable during adulthood, but more unstable during childhood and with increasing age. You have to have recurring seizures to be diagnosed as epileptic, so um, if you have a single seizure, and many of us will have a single seizure in their lifetime, you're not diagnosed as epileptic, but about 2% of us will suffer a seizure, some sort of seizure during their lifetime. There are about 30,000 new cases every year in the UK, and that Trans, uh, translates worldwide to about 50 million sufferers, so a very widespread prevalent disorder. About 30% of people who have epilepsy are refractory, do not respond to the drugs that we have available to treat them. So their epilepsy is either non-controlled in the first place by the drugs, or as the, the condition progresses, the control becomes less and less. So that's a serious number of people that we have difficulty treating. Okay. A way out of drug refractoriness is to perform surgery to remove the part of the brain where the epilepsy is arising. But even that is effective in a lot of cases, but a lot of people still will have, be having seizures even after that brain surgery. Okay. There are about 1,000 deaths a year in the UK attributed to epilepsy, either directly um, or indirectly. And about half of those, there's no real reason or obvious reason for that death to occur, and we call those SUDEPs, sudden unexplained deaths in epilepsy. And this is an important statistic as well. 60 to 90% of epilepsies go either undiagnosed or untreated in developing countries. The point I'm making here is it's a very serious, very widespread disorder. We need to understand it. We need better treatments for it. Okay. So I'm going to continue, and this is the only real sciencey bit here, is to tell you about different types of seizures. Okay, so these are classified, and this is a very general ca categorization, and I'm not going to dwell on it for too long, we have what we call simple partial seizures. Okay, so these are seizures which will arise here in one bit of the brain and not really spread from there. So you may get some sort of behavioral signs associated with that seizure, okay, but they don't progress into what we all really understand as epilepsy, or the majority of us would think of epilepsy as people having a convulsion, falling down, frothing at the mouth, that sort of thing. Okay, so simple partial seizures, this is an epileptic event, but quite often there is no obvious behavioral signs associated with it. You can then get complex partial seizures, which originate here and then spread to other areas of the brain, and depending where they spread to, you can get behavioral changes, motor effects associated with that spread, depending on what area is being invaded here. And then you can get what we call partial seizures, which arise in one area of the brain, but then spread to the whole of the brain, okay? And that's a secondarily generalized seizure. So a generalized seizure involves the whole brain um, very, very rapidly becoming involved in that seizure, okay? And a secondary generalized seizure is the type generally that we associate with the sort of traditional picture of epilepsy, of people having convulsions and falling down, etc. You then got primarily generalized seizures, and these are mainly two types, and these two pictures are exactly the same, and I'm not going to sort of go into details of what the major differences are, but these are terms that a lot of people will be familiar with, petit mal seizures and grand mal seizures. Okay, so little epilepsies, if you like, and big epilepsies. These are the ones that we always think of as epilepsy, people having convulsions, losing consciousness, collapsing on the floor, okay? They will last minutes in duration, okay? Petit mal epilepsies, the little ones, the absent seizures, which again, a lot of people are familiar with, these are just very brief periods, four, five, six seconds of absence. They do involve loss of consciousness, but not loss of posture. Okay, so you're not falling down. They're very common in children. In school, they're accused of daydreaming because they sit there, they stare, there's a blank look, five, six seconds later, and then they're back. They don't remember what, 
that what happened during that brief period. But these are the two main classifications of generalized seizure. Okay, now that's a very simple classification, and I just want to stress that this is a very, very simple classification. It's an enormously complex disorder. And these are a couple of books that I've got actually sitting on my bedside table. I know I'm a sad man, that I read these books at night to put me to sleep. Okay, puzzling cases of epilepsy, and 110 puzzling cases of epilepsy. And these are incredibly interesting books to read because they're little anecdotal studies by physicians, clinicians, who have studied epilepsy and are presenting their most interesting case. Okay, and you can go through these books and there's an enormous range of these disorders that don't fall into really well-categorized um, epilepsies. Okay, there's all sorts of stuff. You know, there's epilepsies associated with brushing your hair, epilepsies associated with sitting and doing concentrated mental arithmetic. Okay, all kinds of things. And this stresses the enormous complexity of the disease. A real definition of epilepsy in terms of what it involves in the brain, and this one is as good as any. It's the name for the occasional, sudden, excessive, rapid, and local discharges of grey matter. And that is a definition that was provided for us by John Hewlings Jackson in 1873. And this, he was seen as a turning point in epilepsy research, and I'll get to him again later on, okay, where we suddenly really began to see epilepsy as a disorder of the brain, and actually the epilepsy wasn't the disorder, but was the symptoms of the disorder, of this disordered discharges in the brain, lots of neurons doing strange things at the same time. Okay, and I will get back to that, but the other thing I want to point out here is that this was published in a paper um, which was published in the West Riding Lunatic Asylum Medical Reports. Okay, and that's again something that sort of points up. Another point about epilepsy is that it's been very much seen with stigma. Okay, it was seen for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, as something to be hidden and ashamed of. Okay, as a mental disorder. We know it's not a mental disorder. It's an organic disorder of the brain which can be treated, and it's not a reflection of um, madness or anything like that. Okay, I'll get back to that again later. This is John Hewlings Jackson, a magnificent beard, like all scientists in the 18th and 19th century. Um, I have in my bag a biography of John Hewlings Jackson, which I read again, sitting in bed, and I have to say it's probably one of the most boring books I've ever read, surprisingly. <laughs> It's extremely tedious, but it, there are bits of it that are interesting, but he didn't exactly lead an exciting life, apart from when he turned epilepsy research on its head. Okay, so let's get on with some history. Um, it was always thought the first recorded, sort of really recorded history of epilepsy started with Hippocrates. Um, but it's not true. There's this... Um, tablet of stone, which illustrated here, two sides of one bit of this tablet of stone. And this is um, an account of diseases translated as all diseases called the Sakikiku. Okay. It's a Babylonian diagnostic um, medical text. Okay. And the, these are the, 20, and, and the 25th and 26th tablets of this text actually describe epilepsy in some detail, and quite astonishing detail, really, um, given our modern understanding of it. Okay. There are words used here, depending on which language um, was being used in the tablet, okay, and miktu is the common one, and that refer refers to epilepsy as the falling sickness, which is what it was seen as for many, many years. It was termed the falling sickness. So epilepsies which didn't involve loss of consciousness which didn't involve outward signs of anything very much, were not really seen as epilepsy. You had to be falling down and losing consciousness to be um, suffering from epilepsy. And miktu was the word that was used here. 
Okay, and these are some of the extracts from this, and they're quite revealing because of the detail, um, especially in relationship to our current understanding. So this one here, at the time of his fit, he clenches his hands as though rigor had seized him, legs extended, greatly convulsed, and if the seizure abates, and he begins to regain consciousness. So it's very much a description of what we understand as a primary generalized tonic-clonic seizure, that generalized seizure I, I um, talked to you about a minute ago. Okay. He loses consciousness. Foam comes from his mouth. These are all really very classical symptoms of that kind of seizure. Okay. Crying out. Vocalization during a seizure. Utters a sound like an animal. Saliva flows from his mouth. His neck is pressed to the left. And these, again, are symptoms of early stages of tonic-clonic seizures. Okay? And I don't, I'd say I'm not a clinician. I do know something about the clinical side of epilepsy. Um, but these are certainly um, recognizable descriptions of modern-day understanding of epilepsy. Okay. Um, Yes, okay, so it is MIG-2. That's what it says in the document. And again, here's a couple of more extracts from this, which I really want to sort of point out, um, again, relative to modern day. It says, if the time of his possession, while he's sitting down, his left eye moves to one side, a lip puckers, saliva flows, and his hand and leg and trunk on the left side jerk like a newly slaughtered sheep, it is MIG-2. Okay, and there's a great description of what Jackson described as a Jacksonian march type seizure where it begins in one extremity and bit by bit it spreads through extremities to involve the whole brain and the tonic-clonic seizure. Okay, not necessarily a generalized seizure, but it's something that Jackson described in great detail. And it's described here thousands of years before. This bit here, if the... Before his fit, his body is heavy for him and picks him up, and afterwards he has a fit of loss of consciousness. This heavy feeling is a, a description, an, an early description of what we understand as auras in epilepsy. So these are feelings, um, sensory things that we get, vision changes, feelings of sensory changes in our body that precede seizures. And we know that, and they're described as auras now. And um, this is, an, again, an early description of it. Okay. And finally, if at the time of his possession his mind is consciously aware, the demon can be driven out. So right then, right there, we're being told that epilepsy is not a disease. It's a possession. It's because you're being possessed by devils, demons, goblins, whatever. Okay. And you can drive them out if you're awake, according to this document. But if you're not awake, then you cannot drive those demons out. Okay. So it's an early indication of how epilepsy was viewed. I'm going to move on a bit now. Um, and this is very briefly sort of almost the next historical step in the mention of epilepsy in history. Okay, and this was by Atreya, who was seen as the father of Indian medicine. And this was um, a document that was produced around about the time when he was active, which is a compendium of Ayurvedic internal medicine. And again, you can find descriptions in there of seizures which represent what we understand today. Paroxysmal loss of consciousness, disturbances of memory, and the understanding of mind together with convulsive seizures. So many, many years before Hippocrates was originally thought to be the first really historical account, these were being described in quite some detail. And I'll show you later that treatments were all, um, underlying causes were also mentioned in those documents as well. Okay, and again, in ancient China, there are good descriptions here, I'm not going to read through every one here, but in this document here, the Yellow Emperor's classic of internal medicine. Okay, good description that you can easily recognize the seizures that we understand and know about today. Okay, and these are really good diagnostic descriptions going back thousands of years. 
Okay, so we now get to Hippocrates, and I'm going to dwell on him a little bit, um, because he did produce this document, or he said he was thought to be the writer of it. There is some discussion about whether he actually write it or wrote it himself, or whether others wrote it. So 400 BC, this document was called On the Sacred Disease. Okay, and there's a website here, which if you've got time, you can write it down. And if you're interested, go and read the translation of that, because it's a fantastic document to read. It's really, really interesting. Um, I, I just found it really gripping, and I'm going to show you some extracts from it, which I really enjoyed. Um, Okay, so again, these are descriptions, really. Um, patient losing his speech, choking, foam issuing from the mouth, teeth affixed, hands contracted, eyes distorted. Again, a great description of a tonic-clonic seizure. Okay. What it also mentions here is that sometimes the symptoms are on the left, sometimes on the right, sometimes in both. So he's not just referring to generalized seizures, but also to partial seizures. So again, there's a distinction being made there, this early on, between seizures which involve limited areas of the brain, partial seizures, seizures which involve the whole brain, generalized seizures. Okay, and that's a really early mention of division, categorization of epilepsies. This is interesting because he refers to striplings, or children, um, and don't worry about the bit about the defluxion of phlegm. I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, um, but he says that they recover without leaving any marks of the disease, but there is a danger of it becoming habitual and even increasing if not treated by suit suitable remedies. And this is a description of the progressive nature of epilepsy, what we understand as acquired epilepsy and progressive nature of epilepsy. In the, if you start having seizures, the more seizures you have, the more likely you are to get continuing seizures. So again, early clinical descriptions of things that we understand and take for granted almost today. He touched on the hereditary origins of the disorder and believed quite strongly that it was hereditary. Um, and this is going through a list of people. He says if a phlegmatic person is born of a phlegmatic and a ph physical of a physical, it's a terrible word to say that, um, actually means asthma or related disorders. One having spleen disease of another, what is to hinder it from happening when the father and mother was subject to this disease? And he's talking about epilepsy here. So introducing the concept of hereditary nature. And finally, um, persons as a hab habituated for the disease, I'll put this down here, again relating to the fact that it's very stigmatized, okay? When they know they're about to be seized, they flee from men. If their own house be at hand, they run home, but, or if not, to a deserted place where few possible, uh, persons as possible will see them falling. This they do from shame of the affliction, okay? And it is, again, a, as I say, until not so long ago, associated with a distinct stigma uh, and shame in the people that were suffering from it. Okay, so that was interesting from a clinical point of view. Now, from another point of view, this document on the sacred disease is also really, really interesting because it actually goes about debunking the whole business of possession, of demons, of spirits um, invading your body, okay, and introduces right there and then the fact that it's a physical disorder of the brain and the body, and it's not due to possession. And I'm not, I won't read through all of these. There's some really interesting comments, and he's really actually very amusing to read in some respects if you look at the translation. Okay. So he says, starting out right at the beginning, with regard to the disease called sacred, and it was called a sacred disease on the basis that it was supposedly possession um, or in, involving um, an invasion of your body by spirits. It appears to be in no wise more divine, more sacred than other diseases. It has a natural cause from the originates like other uh, affection, affections. 
Men regard its nature and cause as divine from ignorance and wonder. Okay? And it's due to the inability to comprehend it that they use these spiritual interpretations. Okay. Um, I'll skip over that one. And move on to this. Okay. He called them conjurers, purificators, mountebanks, and charlatans, people who thought that this was um, a spiritual disorder. Okay, and, and in this, he goes through a whole range of different gods who, may, who have been associated with epilepsy, okay, saying that if they speak in a sharper or more intense tone, they resemble the state of a horse and say, Poseidon is the cause. Okay. If any excrement be passed, the appellation of anodia is inhibited. If it be passed like birds, it's said to be from Apollo Nemeus. Okay. And he goes through a whole list of these things, okay. debunking them, essentially, and saying this is just ridiculous that these should be associated with the gods. And this is my favorite. You're forbidden to wear a black robe because okay, it will make your epilepsy worse, and it will certainly invoke epilepsy if you sleep on a goat skin or wear it. I'm the opinion that if this were true, none of the Libyans who live in the interior would be free from this disease. Since they all sleep on goat skins, live upon goat's flesh, neither have they couch, robe, nor shoe that is not made of goat skin. <laughs> He's very, very uh, acerbic about these things and dismissive of this whole business of possession. Okay. Moving on quite quickly now to the first millennium. Here's some people who really, you know, I'm just picking odd little bits here that I think are of interest in terms of how we understand the disorder. Okay. And Celsus, Demosina, this document he produced, he said, whenever the sensation of, coming, of the coming fit begins in one part of the body, and this again describes... Um, the sensation that parts of your body are going to be involved in the fit, because they are. They're involved with partial seizures in areas of the body that control those parts of your body. Okay, so if you feel something in your arm, contractions in your arm, it's because there's a seizure in the cortex of your brain that's involving the control of that arm. Okay, and these are, er again, early descriptions of uh, good clinical descriptions of what we understand now. Okay, um, Aurelius, the Cappadocian, if it be near the accession of the paroxysm, there are before sight circular flashes of black, purple black colors all mixed together so they exhibit the rainbow expanded in the heavens, noises in the ears, a heavy smell, really, really descriptive of the auras that um, epileptic patients suffer prior to seizures, visual disturbance oral hear sound disturbances, disturbances involving smells of different things. Okay. And this is interesting because he also goes on to say, other seizures can be generated from gazing intently on a running stream, a rolling wheel, or a spinning top. And this is something that is quite familiar to a lot of people you see on the news every night. Okay. There's some flash photography in the next film clip. And that's there as a warning to people who suffer from um, visual epilepsy associated with flashing lights of different frequencies. Okay. It's not just flashing lights. There are a lot of things that involve repetitive stimulation, sensory stimulation, that can trigger epileptic activity. And this is really what you're looking at there, a description from 150 AD of that very thing that if you look at and uh, subject yourself to, to repetitive sensory stimulation, you can trigger your epilepsy. Around the time of Gallen, there was a big change in the sort of understanding of epilepsy in some respects. Okay. Um, and Gallen stated that there is not only convulsion of the whole body, but also interruption of the leading functions, then this is called epilepsy. Okay. And he proposed that there were three varieties. So now this is really getting down to classification of different epilepsies. Okay. Not associated with the way we classify it particularly today, but you can recognize within his descriptions different 
forms of epilepsy. But his explanation for why he had these different forms was really wide of the mark. And he said that one begins in the brain. So you've got an epilepsy that begins in the brain. We can all accept that. Others begin in the stomach and rise to the brain. Okay, we know that that's not uh, uh, anything that really happens. But he thought, and many of the ancients thought, that epilepsies begin in different parts of your body and then rise to affect the brain. Okay, and then he sort of went on to say, starting from any point of the body and traveling up to the head. These we recognize now as, um, again, associated with partial epilepsies involved in um, sensation in different parts of the brain, which are you feeling in your body. And his explanation was that they were starting in the body and moving to the brain, whereas it was really the other way around. This again, um, I won't read the whole thing, but it's a description essentially of um, talking to a young child who had epilepsy and coming to the conclusion from talking to somebody else who saw the epileptic fit and talked to him afterwards about auras again. It was like a cold current rising through the body. And these, again, are very descriptive uh, of auras, things, sen um, um, sensory disturbances that precede seizures. Okay. Gallen had a, a huge influence on epilepsy, and I'm going to get back to some of that a bit later. These are just um, little ones now moving on a little bit to medieval times. Bernard de Gordon said, sometimes the paroxysm is long and violent, but I've seen it so short that the patient only had to lean against the wall, rub his face, and it ceased. Did not need support. Recited a Hail Mary. Before he finished it, the paroxysm had passed. Okay. Great description of a simple partial seizure there. Okay. Although he didn't know what he was explaining at the time, it's a really sort of a, a step forward in understanding different types of seizure. Okay. And there are similar descriptions by John of Gaddesden here, nor is there a spasm in every epilepsy. So beginning the understanding now that convulsions were not essential to epilepsy, that there are all sorts of different epilepsies. Okay. It's, um, they say that the spasm is manifest and hidden. The matter is sometimes so subtle that the spasm is not evident. Okay, so very pointed descriptions of simple partial seizures just involving small areas of the brain. And very similarly, Antonio Benevieni, um, another description here of she did not exhibit falling down did not foam at the mouth, but just stand still, dumb, deaf, insensible. Now, that was interpreted as being a simple partial seizure. Again, I think actually what he's describing is a very, very early description of absence seizures that I talked about right at the beginning. Brief five, ten-second periods where you just lose consciousness and then come back again. Okay, and I think that's sort of one of the very earliest descriptions of absence seizures that we have. Well, I should just point out that if anybody's wondering what this is over here, John of Gaddesden was also um, accredited with um, installing or inserting the first uh, urethral catheter in somebody who had a disease of the urethra who couldn't urinate. And that's a nice picture of him, but it's nothing to do with epilepsy. So. <laughs> We're moving forward in time now to the Renaissance and through to the Enlightenment. And here we have a really influential person, Thomas Willis. Okay, and Thomas Willis uh, produced a number of really, really um, influential documents. De Anima Brutorium, Pathology Cerebri, Cerebri Anatomy. Okay, he was seen as a really the founding father of the discipline of neurology, studying the brain, how it works, and the disorders that afflict it. Okay. He produced enormously detailed anatomical descriptions of the brain, the different areas of the brain. Um, those of you who are biologists may be familiar with this structure down here called the Circle of Willis. It's the blood vessels that 
um, supply most of the blood to your brain. There's a circular structure here. And he was the first one to describe that, and it's named after him, obviously. And that's an enormously important advance in understanding the function of the brain. Okay. Um, he had uh, many descriptions, many documents describing epilepsy. Um, and this one was quite interesting again, because he's also describing here the progressive nature of epilepsy. These kinds of fits came only once or twice in a month. Afterwards, the assaults being made more grievous by degrees, they also returned more often, and within half a year was plainly changed into epilepsy. Okay, so again, progressive nature. The more seizures you have, the more likely you are to get further seizures. Okay. This woodcut down here actually illustrates something else for what he was, that he was famous for. And he was um, a pathologist. He used to do post-mortems on people who were executed in and around Oxford. Um, and with his partner, uh, whose name has slipped my mind, he was supposed to do a post-mortem on a woman who was hanged for killing her newborn child, uh, Anne Green. And when they delivered her body for post-mortem, they were just about to start, and she actually started to come round, um, having been declared dead about four hours previously. And he and his partner actually managed to resuscitate her, and she went on to lead a long life and have three further children, apparently. <laughs> but Willis was famous for that as well. Again, nothing to do with epilepsy. The 18th century now, and these are just ones that I've, I've sort of picked out again as um, being important influences in the description of epilepsy, the underlying mechanisms of epilepsy, um, that really now started to accelerate at the time. And in the 18th century, these guys here, Herman Buhava, George Chain, Pedro de Horta, he produced the first text describing epilepsies from the, from the New World. Okay, and it's a very, very descriptive title. I love the titles of some of these articles that they're writing. Okay. Um, William Cullen was... Um, a physician who really was credited with introducing this term partial epilepsies. I've talked about description of par partial epilepsies in previous slides here, but that term only really came into being when Cullen coined it to describe epilepsies that do not invade the whole body, that do not necessarily cause loss of consciousness and loss of um, posture. Okay, so he was credited with that. And Samuel Tiso, down here, um, he was, this was the earliest acknowledgement of the term, the description of absence epilepsies, you know, the brief periods, particularly in childhood epilepsies. And this is a good description down here from his paper, um, which describes absence epilepsies in quite some detail, movement of the eyelids, which can be recognized as convulsive. Okay? And then, again, the progressive nature Okay, but four months later, real epileptic attacks began. He's describing epilepsies originally, but then saying, to some extent, these are not proper epilepsy. They're only the, pre the precursor to, the forerunner of epilepsy. Okay, but he is describing here absent seizures leading on to more, um, uh, to tonic-clonic type grand mal seizures. And now we come to the 19th century, okay? Um, and this is where it really started to change, okay? The whole argument in the early 19th century was dominated about whether, the, whether epilepsy involved loss of consciousness at all. Um, did it involve convulsions at all? Did it involve both? Did you have to have one or other or both to be diagnosed as epileptic? And there was a big, big discussion and argument for 50-odd years there about whether epilepsy had to involve loss of consciousness to be defined as epilepsy, whether you had to have convulsions. We understand now, from what I've said earlier on, the different classifications of epilepsy is that neither is actually a prerequisite for epilepsy. But it was still seen then that epilepsy was a convulsive disorder a loss of consciousness was um, an absolute prerequisite by some. Big discussion about it going on. But there was a much 
greater recognition now of multiple types of epilepsy and manifestations coming in. Absence seizures really began to be widely recognized. Okay? And Escarol, um, in 1836, he really introduced this term putty mal. Okay? And Calme really started to use absence as a term of description um, for this type of epilepsy on a regular basis. Okay? Richard Bright provided a superb description in his um, article here of um, absence seizures, and normally I would stop and talk about that, but I, I'm not going to because I don't have time. Okay, but John Hewlins Jackson now became prominent in the whole field, and he revolutionized our understanding of the pathogenesis of epilepsy, absolutely revolutionized it, okay, and said that the convulsion is just a symptom. Epilepsy is the symptom of the, diso the disorder of the brain tissue. Okay. And, um, again, I, I won't read this, but if you did bother to read it, you'd find it's enormously convoluted in its descriptive language. And reading anything by Hewlings Jackson is really quite um, a strain to understand it in any great detail. Okay because he writes in a very convoluted way, which is partly why that book was so boring. Okay? But he is seen as revolutionizing our understanding of epilepsy. This picture up here was from one of his papers, and he saw a progression, and the finer the lines on this drawing, going from the heart up to the brain, as the lines get finer and finer, he associated that with more and more complex systems, and he drew that picture to represent that. So how do we understand the epileptic process? For about 150 years, we are fairly, being fairly convinced it's a natural, organic, biological disorder. For about 3,000 years before that, we thought it was supernatural, involving invasion or possession, possession by infection, infliction by a remote entity, by witches visiting their spells on you imposed on you as a punishment for something you'd done. The influences of other humans which actually, who you know, conducted voodoo-type um, treatments on you, okay, or any combination of those. So for thousands of years, it was seen as a possession okay, which needed casting out rather than a disturbance of your nerves in your brain. This is a great line. There is no infirmity, not even leprosy or epilepsy, which cannot be caused by witches with God's permission. So you could have witchcraft and spells put on you, but the witches still had to get permission from God to actually do it. Okay, and I thought that was quite interesting. Um, I will actually just skip over this very quickly because these are some descriptions which were in this very early Babylonian document which again as I said earlier really saw it as a disease of ghosts spirits, demons Okay, and these are various other people which mentioned similar sorts of things throughout the year and I suppose the most interesting one here is in the gospels where the Jesus cured, cast out the spirits from the child um, who um, appeared to be possessed, and we understand that now to be actually the child suffering from epilepsy, and I don't suppose he was cured at all. Okay. I'm getting very pushed for time here. So if we move on and think about biological rather than um, physiological, rather than spiritual causes, Atreya, in his early writings described epilepsy as occurring, as I said, and due to aggravation of bodily humours affecting the brain. Okay. So the spirits, the, the tissue, the liquids, the fluids of your body, which they knew as humours, were supposedly um, aggravated in epilepsy. And any number of things could cause that to happen. There's some very weird and wonderful things on that list there. Um, and then we come back to Hippocrates, and he attempted really a detailed explanation of the sacred disease. 
Okay. We knew from early times there were four main elements, air, fire, water, and earth. And these were associated with qualities, okay, by ancients, okay, cold, hot, wet, and dry. And then there became associated with these further four bodily humors, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And they were associated with these elements and qualities. And Hippocrates attempted to explain epilepsy, the causes of epilepsy, in terms of disturbance of these bodily humors. And it would take me a long time to explain what he actually proposed. But basically, he said that phlegm um, should have been purged from the brain during birth or shortly afterwards. And if it didn't, it would then subsequently descend from the brain, block up your veins, and stop the what were called pneuma or breaths or air from getting to your brain. And in doing that, stopped your brain from functioning and caused epilepsy. Okay, so it's an excess of phlegm descending from your brain, um, which should have been purged during childbirth and wasn't. Okay. A very complicated explanation, um, and as I say, it would take me a long time to go through. And these are, um, again, I don't want to descend, describe all of them because of time constrictions, but these are just interesting ones that came up um, over the years, um, other mechanisms. Again, phlegm, you see here, mixing with black bile. Um, vapors rising to the head and swelling the veins and choking the air supply. And Gallen now extended this Hippocratic thinking by describing the fact that these, the air that got in your brain was, allowed your brain to function by circulating within the cavities of your brain, not in the tissue, but in the cavities of your brain. Okay? And it was phlegm or black bile which was obstructing these cavities, stopping that air moving around and preventing brain function again. And this applied to all the forms of epilepsy that he described. Paolo Vagina is um, accredited with the first real indication that the ventricles were not the important thing, the cavities of your brain were not important, but it could be a disturbance in the tissue of your brain rather than the, in the cavities inside them. Okay, and that was really the first description of that. And this one is interesting in regard to the moon gods because Arnold of Villanova said that different humours, dysfunction of different humours were involved at different times, different quarters of the moon. Okay. This was an indication of something else that was very seen very widely was that epilepsy was a visitation punishment visited on you by the moon gods for whatever, whatever reason. Okay. I'm running out of time rapidly here. Um, I think I might just skip over these because what I w really want to do is get on to the treatment because a lot of this is repetitive in terms of the development of how we understand epilepsy. But it was really during the late 1800s, uh, late 1700s, that we began to understand epilepsy as a dysfunction of brain in terms of excitement rather than loss of function. It was a brain that was overactive that was the cause of epilepsy, not underactive. And this was what we thought for thousands of years, was that it was the brain stopped functioning and therefore you became epileptic. And now we're beginning to understand that it's not dysfunction, it's hyperfunction, it's increased function. Lots of nerve cells doing things that they shouldn't do, okay, at the same time. So ex excitation of the brain, not um, inhibition of the brain, was important. And this was only really beginning to develop, this understanding was only really beginning to develop at this time here. And increasingly we recognized that humors, spirits, and fluids were not what was precipitating the causes of epilepsy and now begin to speculate on electricity in the brain. And this is how we understand how the brain works now. It works through electricity. Okay. It cells in the brain communicate with each other by using electricity. Okay. And Galvani in 1780 demonstrated the 
role of electricity in mediating the effects of nerves on other tissues. He was looking at nerves on muscle, but it's the same understanding. We understand now that nerves in the brain communicate with electricity. And Caton, in 1875, was really the first person to demonstrate electrical activity as such in the brain. Okay. And he said that the electrical occurrence of the gray matter appear to have a relation to its function. So this is what we understand when we record brain waves. So we're recording electrical activity there in the brain. And he, this was only at this time beginning to be recognized that electricity was so important. And that jumps straight on to the 19th century again and beyond that. And this is really where I want to sort of end the development of epilepsy, how we understand it, how the dis clinical description of it and how it's mediated. Okay, because with this understanding that electrical activity of the brain was very important for communication in the brain, we now realize that derangement of that electrical activity was what was going on in epilepsy, not changes in the fluids, blocking of fluids or anything. It was a change in the electrical communication, and particularly as well in chemical communication between the nerve cells of the brain. The electricity drives the message, but it releases chemicals to, to deliver that message. Okay. And this is going back to John Hewlett Jackson's definition that epilepsy is driven by sudden, excessive, rapid, and local discharges. And I've put this in here in red. This is my uh, addition to his definition. Okay. It's highly synchronized. And that's the important thing about epilepsy, convulsions, and the manifestations of epilepsy, is that it involves thousands of brain cells doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. Okay. And that's where the problem comes. It's because when they do that, they lose their individual function. And they act as a mass and cannot actually function in the way that they're supposed to anymore. Okay. And that's where we are today, understanding epilepsy as a treat as a an electrical disorder, a chemical imbalance in the brain, a combination of the two. Okay? Nothing to do with spirits, nothing to do with demons, nothing to do with fluids blocking the ventricles or anything else. Okay. Can I take another five minutes? Yes? Okay. So how do we treat it? Supernatural remedies. This is the actual really interesting bit, actually, because if you go back and think about how the ancients used to treat epilepsy, they used to say, sleeping in the temple of Aesculapius, who is the god of medicine. Okay, that would cure your epilepsy. Here he is, holding his staff with a serpent entwined around it. Here he is visiting London at the bottom, I think, or he should be. Oh, there he is talking to a man in London who's asking him, what is he, you're the god of medicine, what does this microbe do? Okay. But sleeping in his temple was supposed to cure your epilepsy, as long as you didn't have a bath or sleep on a goatskin. Okay. Sacrifice to the moon gods. So Celeste or Luna, the moon gods, were, because epilepsy was strongly associated with phases of the moon, that if you made a sacrifice to them, you could cure your epilepsy. And exorcism, there's some wonderful pictures of exorcisms casting out the demons. Okay, this is a Rubens in the middle, I think. And you can see these demons, these horrible demons, climbing up the wall after they've been exorcised from the epileptic patient. Okay, Charms and amulets, oh sorry, prayer, just simple prayer, was supposed to be able to cure your epilepsy by getting rid of your demons again, okay? And obviously charms and amulets were very important. Anything that would sort of prevent you being invaded by a spirit, snake vertebra were very effective apparently. And the cuckoo, this is a cuckoo skull. Cuckoo has long been associated with epilepsy. Apparently if you wear a dead one around your neck, it stops you from getting seizures, okay? Um, but bones of cuckoo ground up and 
made into medicine, all sorts of things associated with the cuckoo for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. What this is to show you is that the superstition, the supernatural remedies, the involvement of spirits goes through to the modern day. This is actually a mobile phone number on the top here, <laughs> as you can see. So you can see it's modern. It's not ancient. Okay, but Professor Garbagola, or whatever his name is, okay, traditional healer with powers over spirits, souls, all cases, demons, thieves, tooth decay, and epilepsy down the bottom, okay? And that's a really modern photograph taken in, I don't exactly remember the country, but it's in Africa somewhere, okay? So that supernatural thing still comes through to the current day, okay? Now you've got a combination of some treatments here, which may or may not have some biological basis. So burning holes or cutting holes in your head, and some nice pictures of people having holes hammered in their head here, um, was supposed to be a cure for epilepsy, originally thought to be letting out the demons, make a hole, let them out at the top of your head. But, um, but there is possible biological basis here of relieving pressure in the brain. So it's known that in, into increased uh, pressure within your brain can induce seizure-like activity. Okay, so it's possible that there's a biological basis associated with this here. Sucking the blood from fallen gladiators. Any kind of blood, actually, would do. But here's a fallen gladiator, and it was thought that if you suck the blood from the, the fallen gladiator, that would help your epilepsy. Or drinking urine from the shoe of a witness to a seizure. Okay, I'm not going to show you a picture of somebody drinking urine from a shoe. <laughs> I have my limits. Okay, but these may have some basis in biology, but the, what they also were supposed to do was make your body such an unpleasant place to be that the demons and spirits no, no longer wanted to reside there, so they just left. So there's possible biological basis, mostly superstition there, I think. Okay. And medical biology... Now we're talking about real treatments, okay? And this is a great quote here. And this is from 1858, so fairly recently, relatively speaking, scarcely a substance in the world capable of passing through the gullet of a man that has not enjoyed the reputation of being an anti-epileptic. Okay. In terms of other biological, physical biological treatments, purging was seen through for many hundreds of years as useful. Getting rid of some blood... Feces, urine, stomach, making you vomit, making you um, urinate was thought to be effective in epilepsy as well as pharmacological treatments, okay? And that has some basis in biology, again, which I won't really sort of go into. But here's a few of the favorites that I came up with. Tortoise blood. And why tortoises, for goodness sake, you know? Gladiators and tortoises. Couldn't imagine anything further apart, really. But tortoise blood was a good one. This is interesting from a pharmacologist's point of view because loads of plants, many, many plants have been used as possible anti-epileptics. Here's a few here, mistletoe, belladonna, foxglove, and you'll recognize those as common plants being widely used over the years as epileptic treatments. And as a pharmacologist, you'd recognize that Lots of those have very highly active ingredients in them. Unfortunately, most of them are deadly poisonous. <laughs> They'll cure your epilepsy permanently. <laughs> Powdered human skull, I love this one. This comes up over and over again. Powdered human skull. Here's a vial. It's a, I can't remember where the museum is. probably says on there somewhere. A vial of powdered human skull. And this is something that's come up many times over the years in treatment of epilepsy. For some reason, it has some biological property, but it also cures your nosebleeds, apparently, as well as your epilepsy. Okay. Hippopotamus and seal testicles. <laughs> May cure your epilepsy, but very difficult to harvest, I believe. <laughs> Beaver scent glands, how horrible, can you imagine eating those? No, not really. Okay. And this is one of my absolute favorites. The nails and flesh of the left foreleg of the tree sloth. 
Now, why would you pick on the nails <laughs> and flesh of the left foreleg as opposed to the right or the hind leg or the marmoset or anything? It's just so bizarre. Okay, and I'm going to finish up with a, um, a couple more slides here. And this is just a list of plants. And this goes back to the quote about anything that you can get down your throat actually has been used at some stage in the treatment of epilepsy. And this is a very incomplete list of plants, minerals, all kinds of weird things here. I love the red stones found in the bellies of swallows obtained when the moon was young. Whole animals, lots of you eat whole animals of various sorts will cure your epilepsy. And parts of animals, blood again coming up here, heart, liver, testicles again, okay, and the human skull. And here's a specific case of treatment that's quite famous. This is Charles the Second, is it? Charles the Second, yeah. The other one got his head cut off, didn't he? Yeah. Anyway, he had a sustained epileptic fit one morning whilst he was shaving. Okay. So first of all, they bled several pints of blood and then gave him further treatments, including all this list of stuff here, antimony, beetroot, fennel seeds, aloe, all sorts of things, and it was given as an enema, which is not particularly pleasant, but it didn't work. So they shaved off his head and blistered his skull with a hot iron. 40 drops of extract of human skull, I told you, it keeps coming up, the human skull. And then finally, pearl julep and ammonia were forced down the royal patient's throat. Shortly thereafter, he died. <laughs> he just about got the whole gamut of ancient treatments there in one go, and it killed him. And I'm going to go through this last one, which I love as well, which is in the Codex Badianus, which is an Aztec um, medical script is seen almost as one of the world's first pharmacopoeias lists of drugs okay and this described a great complex medicine and it included hair from a corpse stag's horn burnt flesh of a mole shut up in a jar patient also had to drink dog's bile to eat the brain of a fox and a weasel and be fumigated with the good odor of a mouse nest burnt on a bed of coals yeah. Wonderful stuff, wonderful. Um, I think I'm going to have to finish there because I've gone way over time. Um, what I would say is that all these things were tried for many, many thousands of years. And until really the 18th century and the 19th century, we had nothing that was of any use whatsoever to treat epilepsy. And then in the 1800s, um, Sir Charles Laycock, who was Queen Victoria's obstetrician, delivered her children. He published, well, he didn't actually publish an article, he spoke at a meeting and said that he tried assault as an anti-epileptic um, in women who were suffering from hysterical epilepsy associated with um, their menstrual cycle. So this was what we know as catamenial epilepsy. Certain stages of the menstrual cycle, women become hysterical, some of them become epileptic. He saw, for various reasons, he tried potassium bromide as a treatment for this hysterical epilepsy. And 14 out of his 15 patients that he tried it on, it terminated their fits. And as long as they kept taking it, they no longer had them. This was the first effective treatment that we ever had for epilepsy. Okay. It certainly works. We have no real idea why, even now, because it's not used any longer for various toxic purposes, toxic reasons. Um, but it was the forerunner of modern pharmacology, okay, as far as epilepsy is concerned. In the early 1900s, we had, um, in the late 1800s, we discovered the effectiveness of barbiturates as treatments for epilepsy. That was entirely fortuitous. People who had various barbiturate salts were using them as sedatives to treat patients. 
to calm them down. These were mental patients, okay? So to calm them down, to stop their hysteria, they were treated with these, but it was then noted that they were also effective in patients that had epilepsy and stopping their epilepsy. Totally serendipitous, and that then led on to the drug design period where we were more and more were able to say, this drug is useful as a treatment for epilepsy. Okay, let's design one that's a bit better. Okay, and that was the forerunner of modern pharmacology, the bromides first and then the barbiturates. We now have about 20 or 30 anti-epileptic drugs on the market, which doesn't sound a lot and isn't a lot. Okay. There have been very few in that intervening 100 years or so, 120 years, very few new treatments, relatively speaking, have appeared to treat epilepsy. It's still a very serious disorder. It still needs better drugs to treat it. Okay. Our understanding of epilepsy, as you can see, has changed massively over the years, but it is relatively in its infancy how we understand the disorder itself and how we're going to treat it. As I said right at the beginning, 30% of our epileptic patients really don't respond very well to any of the drugs that we have. Most people with epilepsy are taking one, two, at least two or three different drugs in combination. Okay. We need lots more invest investigation. We need lots more research. We need to find better drugs for treatment of the disorder. And I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you.